There are times when we gather and worship and every now and then I sense them where we need to have the benediction and go home. This was one of those times. You didn't have the words. I got the words this week. I've been listening as the choir, university singers, declare our hope in the face of death. Our homily on death today. So, oh, Dwight, why do we have to talk about death? This is life or it's a new beginning simply because death is the world we live in. Darkness and death. But it is not death. They just sang this. It is not death to fling aside this sinful dust and rise on strong, immortal wing to live among the just. Jesus, thou prince of life, thou, thy chosen cannot die. Oh, we die, but death is but an instant. Like thee, they conquer in the strife to reign with thee on high. And then that last refrain that swept us up to heaven. You heard the choir sing the words, To be at home with God, it is not death to die. We had deaths last year. We had no idea when the year began that there would be deaths. Who can say this uncharted journey into darkness, this world in which we live, but here is the light that shines. To be at home with God, it is not death to die. Oh God, that, that is our confession of hope. We know the darkness. We live in it. But Holy Father, these few moments left in Holy Scripture, let the light shine. We pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I discovered something about Mark Twain this summer that I had never known before, and it's possible you have not known it either. I'm going through my library. You know what? Books are old friends. And I saw a book I hadn't read in a long time. And sometimes just pulling a book out, you read it again and it, it becomes, becomes life again. Frederick Buechner, one of my favorite uh, writers. Mark Twain, of course, you all know. He, he wrote the... Uh, he, he is this uh, American humorist, the uh, folksy chronicler of Southern life. He wrote the book uh, Tom Sawyer. You read that as a kid, Tom Sawyer. And then The Adventures of... Huckleberry Finn. We all know Mark Twain. Pseudonym. It's a pen name, of course, for Samuel Clemens. What you didn't know and I didn't know is that he was haunted by death, and the theme of darkness is woven through his humor. It's kind of like the guy at the party that's the funniest guy around, hiding a broken heart. All the laughter, and you still see the pain. Mark Twain was that guy. He grew up with a kid brother named Henry. Sam did. They were actually both working on a, on a, a side wheel, side wheel riverboat, you remember. They were on separate boats at this time when a tragic accident took place. A boiler exploded on the boat where 19-year-old Henry was working. He was mortally wounded. He practically died in the arms of his next older brother. Twain writes the wife of their older brother, Orion, these words, Long before this reaches you, my poor Henry... My darling, my pride, my glory, my all will have finished his blameless career and the light of my life will have gone out in utter darkness. 
For the rest of his life, Twain blamed himself for not being on that ship. He could have saved Henry. Fourteen years later, Twain's two-year-old boy Langdon dies of diphtheria. Crushed again. Why didn't I? I should have put more clothing on him. He wouldn't have caught this. But the most devastating death of all that never left him was when he and his wife Livy and their youngest daughter Clara were on an around-the-world lecture. Twain's publishing business had collapsed. He was desperate to raise money to pay off the debts, so he said, I'll do a lecture tour. I'll just travel. While on the tour, their 24-year-old girl Susie is back home alone in Hartford, and she dies of spinal meningitis. They can't even be there to bury her. Twain never forgave himself. He kept this haunted, morose, if only I had been there. How could she die all alone? The whole family gone. In his autobiography, published posthumously, Twain describes the effect of her death on him in a passage stunning. I'm going to read it to you for its depiction of death's ceaseless sense of loss. Put it on the screen for you. There's a study guide today, nothing to fill in. You take the study guide home. You'll have this quote. Put it on the screen. Mark Twain, at the end of his life, it is one of the mysteries of our nature that a man all unprepared can receive a thunderstroke like that and live. Your little girl died. Thunderstroke. There is but one reasonable explanation of it. The intellect is stunned by the shock and but gropingly gathers the meaning of the words. Some of you have been through this. The power to realize their full import is mercifully wanting. The mind has a dumb sense of vast loss. That is all. It will take... It will take mind and memory months and possibly years to gather together the details and thus learn and know the whole extent of the loss. And now, a moving, a moving illustration of how it, how it is. Twain writing, he says, okay, so let's, let's say a man's house burns down. That's going to be the metaphor. A man's house burns down. The smoking wreckage represents only a ruined home that was dear through years of use and pleasant associations. By and by, as the days and weeks go by, first he misses this, then that, then the other thing. And when he casts about for it, he finds that it was in that house. Always it is an essential. There was but one of its kind, and I can't replace it. It cannot be replaced. It was in that house. It is irrevocably lost. You who have experienced the death of one so close know exactly of what he writes. He did not realize, this man, that it was an essential. When he had it, when we have each other, we never realize He only discovers it now when he finds himself balked and hampered by its absence. It will be years before the tale of lost essentials is complete, and not till then can he truly know the magnitude of the disaster." Darkness and death. How did he put it? It cannot be replaced. It was in that house. It is irrevocably lost. Come on, I'm asking you, don't we all? Do not all of us live in Twain's world? I mean, please. A friend overdoses this summer and dies. A spouse skids out of control and is killed. A child succumbs. One of the 
clips coming out of Damascus after that tragic chemical attack a few days ago. I cannot get this clip out of my mind. It's of a pale and lifeless one-year-old little girl, and they are desperately trying to resuscitate her. Darkness and death and this, this ceaseless sense of unending loss. We live with it, don't we? We are all Mark Twain. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Truth is, of course, that darkness that we live in, in this land, as the Scripture puts it, where death casts its shadow, may not be the fear of death. For you, it may not be the fear of death at all. For when you're as young as we are, death is easily postponed by simply changing the subject. Our greater darkness, perhaps, is the fear of fear. What Brene Brown calls the fear of vulnerability. At a family reunion this summer, we're trying to do this every summer, go out to my mother, all the siblings with our spouses, we get together. And while we were together, I had a wonderful time in July. Uh, my sister-in-law, Shasta, says, Dwight, you need to see this TED. You know the TED Talks? You need to see this one by Brene Brown. Over 10 million views. I looked at it. Her presentation was so informative and inspiring. I immediately went and I downloaded her book, title of her book, Daring Greatly, How, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead. She writes, put it on the screen for you. You'll have it on the study guide, the take-homer. We love seeing, isn't this true? We love seeing raw truth and openness in other people, but we're afraid to let them see it in us. We're afraid that our truth isn't enough, that what we have to offer isn't enough without the bells and whistles, without editing and impressing. I was afraid to walk onto that TED stage and show the audience my kitchen table self. These people were too important, too successful, too famous. My kitchen table self is too messy, too imperfect, too unpredictable. She writes as a woman, but every man here knows what she describes. This fear of vulnerability. She goes on. Here's the crux of the struggle on the screen. And these italics are hers. I want to experience your vulnerability, but I don't want to be vulnerable. This Texas psychologist writes, Vulnerability is courage in you and inadequacy in me. I'm drawn to your vulnerability, but repelled by mine. Isn't that something? The fear of being exposed, of being shamed, afraid of what they'll think. So we hide in the dark. I know that feeling. I deal with it all the time. And I know what you're saying. You're saying, well, that's a problem you old people have. Thanks a lot. Brene Brown says, oh, really? Let's talk about the millennials. They put it on the screen. These are her words. When I look at narcissism through the vulnerability lens, and you do understand the social scientists have determined that you are driven by this narcissism. You have this self-love that says everything is about me. My Facebook page, my everything is about me. You got it. When I look at narcissism through the vulnerability lens, I see the shame-based fear of being ordinary. Aha! You do have a fear. You're afraid to be average. 
You're afraid to be ordinary. I'm afraid I look ordinary. I'm afraid I act ordinary. Look at you. I see how kids that grow up on a steady diet of reality television, celebrity culture, and unsupervised social media can absorb this messaging and develop a completely skewed sense of the world. I am only as good as the number of likes I get on Facebook or Instagram, end quote. Looks like we all live in the dark heart of fear, don't we? Enter now the Galilean. Open your Bible with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. Open your Bible. Pull out that device. I want you to track this. You don't have either. The Pew Bible, page 650 in your Pew Bible. Matthew, chapter 4. I'm in the NIV, the New International. Matthew, chapter 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill, verse 14, what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Here it goes, verse 16. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. The Galilean, that 30-something former carpenter turned itinerant preacher, the young man with a dust, dusty cloak that shields his dark eyes like a mantle from the burning sun or covers his sinewy body as a blanket in the, on the cold earth of night. The Galilean whose brown eyes beamed with such strong warmth. His genuine quick smile made you feel like you were a dear friend. The Galilean. You couldn't, pick, you couldn't pick him out of a crowd, really. Not particularly handsome or regal in his build. Except for that aura, that sense that when he was near, there was a deep caring, a strong compassion for you from the stranger with the mantle. The Galilean. Whose first, did you catch that? His first red-letter word when he moves to Galilee. The first red-letter word, repent. Read it again. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent of what? I mean, come on. We didn't choose to live in this dark land where death casts its shadow. It isn't our fault that we were born into these fears and have grown up in this darkness. You're right. Hold it, hold it. Think about this. Just think about this for a moment. Maybe repent is precisely the right word for you and me in darkness. Could it be that the only way we experience this radical shift from darkness to light is through repentance? Repentance of what? A personal... What is repentance? It would be a personal rejection that dark, of, of the darkness that has plagued us and a personal reception of the light that is offered to us. I reject the darkness that fills me now. And I receive the light that draws me now. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. How near? It was early. 
early in the morning in the still, quiet temple in Jerusalem. The Galilean had risen very early in order to be with them. Be with who? The people, young, middle-aged, aged, who live in darkness like you and me. And there as the sunlight streams through the colonnaded portico, transforming that <clears throat> stirred-up dust into a shaft of gold, sitting in that beam of gold is the Galilean. He's telling stories about the light. They're hanging on every word when suddenly, totally unexpectedly, they have a front-row seat on real, live, raw drama about the light. You know the story. Go ahead and turn to it. Uh, John chapter 8. This moment. Suddenly, the interruption. And the story ensues. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. You know the story. Beginning in verse 2. John chapter 8, verse 2. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. They loved him. And he sat down to teach them. Now, verse 13, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. Hit the pause button right there. You want to you know the ultimate depiction of, of vulnerability? That's it. When you have to stand in front of a group and your nakedness and shame are exposed. That is why we feel so vulnerable and why we fear vulnerability, because this might happen to me. Shove her into that circle. And they said to Jesus, verse 4, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, verse 9, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. She said, Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And when Jesus spoke again to the people, get this, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Apparently, no matter how dark the darkness we have inhabited, he does not condemn us. Neither do I condemn you. So go. Let go. Let go of that darkness. And come follow me. For if you follow me, you will never walk in darkness. You will live in the light of life for the rest of your life. Follow me. Wow. I am the light of the world Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Come, follow me. Come on, come on, come on. Follow me. I am the light of the world.
during our summer preseason of prayer. I've been reading a book given to me by some friends. Simple title for the book, Prayer. Two or three Sundays ago, I came across these words that have literally, existentially, may I use that word, existentially, experientially have shifted the paradigm in my way of thinking and living in just the last three weeks. Such a glad gift. I tell you, such a glad gift, these words. And I'm so excited that I get to give them to you right now. Every time I think of these words, I experience a lift. When I come in the presence of darkness, and I do, my own darkness. When I come in the presence of anxiety, when I come in the presence of fear, I have my fears. When I come into that presence, these words, you're going to love them. Release from the very vulnerability you and I fear. I experience that the moment I think of three words. I'm going to give them to you. These words were written a century ago by a little woman named Ellen White. We've talked about Brene Brown, so here's another woman. Ellen White. I'm going to put the words on the screen for you. The study guide, the only reason you have a study guide today is for this single quote on the screen for you. It is our privilege to open our hearts and let the sunshine of Christ's presence in. Isn't that great? My brother, she writes, my sister, face the light. One more. Come into actual personal contact with Christ that you may exert an influence that is uplifting and reviving. End quote. I mean, how rich is the metaphor of light in those three sentences? Number one, open your heart and let the sunshine of Christ's presence into you. Just let it in. Number two, face the light. And number three, come into actual personal contact with Christ. Hey, guys, that right there is a definition of communion conversation, prayer with Jesus. That's it right there. You, you open the door and the sunshine of His presence comes in. You fa- Here's the darkness. You, fa- you turn from your darkness and you face the light. And in the process, you come into actual, personal contact with Christ. Wow. I've been repeating these words. I've been repeating these words again and again. I'm on the front row repeating them. Jesus, please keep me facing the light. Look at I'm just as weak as you are. And I struggle with all the vulnerabilities that, and maybe even more than you do. But I hear him saying to me, Hey, boy, Dwight, psh, face the light. What are you looking at? What are you, what are you concentrating on? Face me. Face the light. You'll be fine. Face the light. Face the light. Wow. So, these three words, I give them to you. Practice these three little words. In fact, say them out loud with me right now. Face the light. Now, come on, you can do better than that. Do it again. Face the light. One more time. Face the light. Darkness. Turn from that darkness. Face the light. The light. And who's the light? It's the Galilean. You're coming into actual, personal contact with him. It doesn't get any better than that. Face the light this new year. 
Face the light. Death is death on the way. Who cares? Darkness around me? Yep. Face the light. Face the light and you will never be the same again. Amen.